Hey everybody, Maggie here, just doing a quick intro. So Ian and I thought it would be fun this week to provide y'all a bit of a peek behind the podcast curtain and to release the test episode that we've alluded to a couple times on the podcast before. So we recorded this back in 2017 when we were first kicking around the idea of starting the Best Pictures podcast. Before we invested in any equipment or podcast hosting, we wanted to make sure that it was a project that would be fun for us, that we would definitely want to see through to the end, and that recording ourselves talking about a movie didn't feel too weird to us. We picked Sunset Boulevard as our test case since it was a best picture contender but didn't win. And we recorded this on an iPhone at my kitchen table, so apologies for the sound quality and for the fact that you can periodically hear my dishwasher beeping in the background. Again, it's a test episode, it is janky AF, and we have come a long way, but I'm still proud of the discussion we had, and this is what made us decide to go forward with the project. So we hope you enjoy it and that you'll join us next time when we kick off our Halloween programming. Um, But until then, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Best Pictures Pod on both. You can also email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, and please enjoy the episode. Welcome to this week's Best Picture. Uh, I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and we're doing Sunset Boulevard. So Sunset Boulevard, it's from 1950. It was directed and co-written by Billy Wilder, starring Gloria Swanson, William Holden, and Eric von Strynum. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, which is why we're doing this as sort of our test case. And then it won Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Score. And I think as we kind of talk through, we'll talk through all of the aspects that played into it, winning those awards. And I think kind of for our main points, um, I want to talk about starting with the character of Norma Desmond and Gloria Swanson's performance, because that really is kind of what makes the picture and everything about that picture. Oh, absolutely. I think, especially knowing that she came from the silent film era, she was a perfect shoe in for this role, even if she wasn't an original desired actress for this picture. Well, Um, just like everything, the way she acts, like you can tell it's from that era and it's, it to me makes it seem like Norma is constantly performing. Like, like that. I feel like you almost don't even get to see the real Norma Desmond. You get to see the Norma Desmond that Norma Desmond thinks. Oh, absolutely. Exists. I think even so. Starting with the scene in her bedroom with the monkey coffin. Talk about um, a character introduction. <laughs> Holy shit! Like you know who she is immediately. Exactly. And so it's I'm I'm this crazy eccentric that. All of a sudden, I have my monkey, which, well, we didn't know it was a monkey, which added to that wonderful <laughs> suspense that kind of flows over the whole yeah. film. Um, You're as confused as William Holden is exactly, going in there. Exactly. But seeing her huge expression on on that famous line about the pictures getting small um, was just delightful. And I think she's perfected that whole look of... Uh, slightly controlled insanity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. She always looks like she's right on the edge. Like she's exactly. about to snap. And it's kind of something I noticed too with like, with the style of acting when, you know, she has the line about like, we had faces and she talks about, she can say anything with her eyes and she does the entire film. Like she really uses her eyes and she uses those big movements. Um, but also she'll kind of strike that dramatic pose and like hold the pose and then do the big movement. And it's so... It's so 20s, and it's so silent oh, it's era. perfectly on the nose, yeah. I think not in a way that is 
off-putting. Yes, it um, isn't overdone. It feels enough. so authentic. I think exactly. is the difference because exactly. um, I think I want to talk later about how you know it is a movie about Hollywood and there are a lot of movies about Hollywood, but mm-hmm. I think this one feels so authentic and organic in a way that a lot don't. And I think part of that is because you have mm-hmm. the aspects of the realism with Gloria Swanson, and then we'll talk about you know Eric von Steinem who plays Max the Butler and her first husband mm-hmm. and original director. Um, but yeah, just her character introduction, everything. About the character. And I think it's interesting too how for she was a silent screen actress, but her line delivery is so good. Yes. And I think that has to be partially because she went to, I believe Gloria Swanson went to stage after kind of her movie career when the, ended with the silent era, she transitioned into radio and stage. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where that comes in. So but, she was able to understand yeah, the so it's like transition this, that she needed. So the like act, visual acting style didn't really change but like her she developed the line delivery yeah absolutely but I do I do kind of want to delve more into Norma's character as well because I I love how they seem to layer on this again patina of age and old uh, like style for everything that she does so like as you get deeper into Norma's character like you start well, realizing yeah, you see more of the insanity it, behind well and it's her. it's like almost it, it's like almost pitiful at times too. Like I think you really feel for her. Absolutely. At times, like she's obviously crazy. She's like she's obviously nuts. <laughs> she's obviously going through a lot. Yes. But like you definitely, I think there's the scene, and I want to bring it up maybe again later and look at the movie. But it's when she's visiting the set, and Demille and that old lighting projector turns that spotlight on her, mm-hmm. and everyone kind of crowds around her, and then it's like. She's getting to almost relive those old days, and she really loves it. And then, well, and you see her come alive in a way. Yeah, that she hasn't exactly. Come alive in exactly. The entirety of you the understand film. that it's like she she almost needs this. And then, oh, this it's the heartbreaking line. I wrote down the line. Oh, where is it? Oh, when Demille shouts out the lighting, he sees it happening, and he looks at the lighting director and says, "Turn that light back where it belongs." And. Oh, I got the full impact oh, of that line, fuck. but like, I don't know if she even registered. No, like she I don't. Still has her I don't think she heard it. Fans. I think it's it's like almost for the audience, but it, that one like got me right in the feels, man. Yeah. Well, and I did like that from for her the effect on her character as well because you were able to see how much her character had influenced the industry and how mm-hmm. important she still was. And, and how it's so sad that she got left behind by an industry exactly. she basically helped create. Exactly. But it was interesting to kind of see that dichotomy between where she was, before she even entered the, the Paramount lot. Mm-hmm. Um, she is this nobody. And then all of a sudden you find the one person at the gate that still remembers her and is able to get her on the lot as if she were in her old glory days. And yeah. it just goes from there and she's able to relive that moment yeah. for a little bit. Which, uh, the false sense of happiness that that gave to her, though. Well, it's almost like, I don't, I don't even, even know if it's, it. I don't even know if it's false. Like, it's just, that's, that's well, where her, it's like where her, it's where her identity yeah. obviously is wrapped up in because, you know, they have the movie nights and every night it's her old movies. And if you look, there's, you know, probably hundreds of pictures of her around yes. that house. And it's, um, funnily enough, like all stills of Gloria Swanson and stuff like that. But 
they're all young her. They're all her in her prime, her in her heyday. And, like, that is 100% where her identity is. And so I think, like, when you see her lose it at the end, it's because, like, her identity is, like, Joe's completely just wiped away her identity and the last things that she was clinging on to. Um, so I do think that that whole scene at Paramount is a very interesting turning point for her character, though. Because you do... She becomes more active. Exactly. Beforehand, she felt... Like, you see... She seems passive and, like, kind of... Mm-hmm. Like, willing to just stay in her own delusional world. And then she becomes yes. more active and wants to bring the delusion to the rest Absolutely. of the world. And that bringing of the delusion, I think, is what makes the whole thing even more tragic. So, mm-hmm. that entire training montage of sorts with her, with all of the beauticians... Because we, as the audience, know it's not exactly. going to work out. We know it's... We know She's going fake. through all this horrible stuff, basically putting herself through this for nothing. Exactly. Um, Which, I, yeah, again, that almost falls into like the ironic category, like what dramatic irony. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. Where it's we know what's about to happen, but it just increases our heightened sense of yeah. knowing her fall is coming mm-hmm. and coming fast. Well, and you know, as as good as Gloria Swanson is, I really want to talk about William Holden, Eric von Steinem, and um. Uh, who's the actress who played Betty? Nancy Olsen, I think. Um, if you want to look that up on your phone while I continue to talk. Um, but I just want to talk about them because their performances are also incredible. And I think they do such a nice job with how, keeping their performances so grounded and subtle because Gloria Swanson... Yeah, so it, it is Nancy Olsen. Um, because Gloria Swanson, is her performance is so overblown and the character is so larger than life that it's you see her surrounded kind of by like real people. And even though it is like the noir feel, so you've got all that like snappy dialogue over top, which I think works considering, you know, you're talking with writers. Exactly. So you They're, would expect to have some, they sort are of writers and you, and you're getting kind of this, it doesn't, cause sometimes voiceovers can feel like old and stale, but I feel like this one doesn't cause it matches the film and you get Joe's inner dialogue. And I think William Holden does such a nice job of when you have the narration going over, his reactions are so good and you can like see the thought processes and I think his reactions there's not even mostly like facial reactions it's a lot of like body language like with their tangoing at the really awkward New Year's party and And he's leaning okay you can come close yeah and he's like leaning back (laughs) and I think it's he's so good and he there's some of his aligned deliveries that are like very Bogart oh yes deliveries I will say, so speaking of that New Year's party, I am incredibly disappointed (laughs) in our character Joe's uh, complete obliviousness to the kind of twisted affections of Norma. Yeah, that is is one of the, there's a couple times in it when you're like, really, Joe? You didn't, like, you didn't see this coming, you haven't figured this out, Mm -hmm. and yeah, so there's there's a couple moments where you get frustrated with him, but... But that, from a perspective of having a consistent character I I was able to believe it in the context of his character yeah. overall it, it's, it's, especially given how the movie ends with him thinking okay I'm just going to walk out of here I'm going to be fine um, yeah and he's well if you watch the first five minutes of the film he, he's very much not fine no no, no. yeah <laughs> he he underestimates Norma I think a yes, lot absolutely um and it's ultimately what gets him killed yeah. um I will say, I like, so as much as the movie focused on his relationship with Norma and that um, kind of odd, 
almost patron, uh, but yeah. romantic cross of a relationship. I mean, like, he's he's her mistress, uh, he, basically. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed how he and uh, Nancy Olsen, who played Betty Schaefer, interacted mm-hmm. in that. Whole it's thing. so different. I think it's such Absolutely. a nice contrast when you see kind of the weird, twisted relationship mm-hmm. between him and Norma because it's obviously she's deluded and he's 100% going along with it for personal gain. But then to see what starts off as kind of this mutual respectful friendship with him and Betty and then becomes like a romance. It's such a different relationship. Like there's a, a sense of equality there and a sense of like camaraderie. Oh, especially with the the equality, because I mean, you know, every time when, you know, Norma's, Norma's buying him things, she's got the, financial ground but then obviously he can kind of manipulate her emotionally so there isn't it's just it's a toxic relationship (laughs) um but then i i love the ending when basically betty's like i don't want to marry Artie. like i'm in love with you and he's basically like i he he does like kind of the right thing for the first time in the movie at the end where he basically he tells betty to go where he's basically like Here's who I am, and like. Here's how I live. Yeah, oh, that that and, was an incredibly powerful scene. Well, and me. I think when you when the scene starts and he's showing her around, he's being very blasé about it. It's given some of the earlier scenes with him and Betty. It seems almost a little bit out of character oh, for absolutely. him. But that then when she back. leaves, when she leaves, William Holden's expression, you 100 mm-hmm. percent know what he just did, and he I think it's. Yeah, well, and I wonder if it's almost because you talk about him, you know, thinking he can just walk out. I wonder if he realizes, like, you know, I care about this person. I'm obviously in an awful situation. And also, like, quite frankly, who knows what Norm is going to do to Betty? Oh, exactly. Like. Exactly. And so I think that whole. You give me a coaster. Coming back to the whole situation where you're like, it feels out of character. Um, It absolutely does. But when you know that Norma is watching or listening from the balcony, it's again playing with this whole idea that both of those two characters are putting on a show for oh, yeah. each other. Yeah. And did for the entire film. Um, so so true. at least from that perspective, I, li- I like that consistency. Um, and even, oh geez, Joe was an asshole. He is, in but that like, scene. And, but it was for the right reasons. Well, so, and Holden like just, he just delivers it so well. Like you. Yes. You believe him, and like I said, his performance is so subtle, which like is so nice in contrast to Gloria Swanson's and the performances work so well together. And then another super subtle performance, Eric von Steinem as Max. Oh my goodness. So Oh, he's so good. His deadpan through the whole film is just delightful. Well, and like <laughs> I think when you get to the reveal that he was Norma's first director and first husband, and then you realize he was like one that he's her butler, and then two, the he like he back. he came back, but he was the one who was having to move William Holden's things into the bedroom that had always been the husband's bedroom, and like basically, and you get the feeling that this obviously she's been married three times. This is not the first time he's seen this, like, yes. which I uh, that made me feel for him sort of, but ultimately, if there is a villain in this film, I feel like he is. The I villain. disagree. Okay, well. I'm going to disagree. Okay, continue. So he, because Norma Desmond was his creation and his legacy, 
I see it as very self-serving for him to continue to prop her up and continue to um, basically have this star that is attached to his creative making. Mm -hmm. So while I think that it's like completely terrible that he would so unabashedly take advantage of somebody who is, well, not in the best mental state and probably because of his own doing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's horrible. And ultimately she can resist moving into the future, but the fact that he does things like write her fan mail or insulate her completely from the outside world. I find that very, um, like very twisted in a, I'm doing this for your own good, but is it really so for your own good? I I agree that the what Max does is not good for her. Like he's not making the right choices. Mm-hmm. But I don't get the feeling he's making the choices from any sort of like personal gain. Because like there's really like mm-hmm. you know they well, never he's not getting anything exactly out of being he the d- <laughs> he's not getting anything out of it other than like I mean I'm assuming that he loves her. If there was, why is he doing this? Um, but there are multiple times where I think he basically is wants Joe to leave or is willing to get Joe out of there mm-hmm. and Joe doesn't take them. Really? Yeah. Um, there's so one was, scene early on. Was it the thinking, scene where he came back in the car in the evening? Was that one of the scenes that you That's one of them where he's like, he's basically saying, and Joe basically, he's like, well, you're spying on me. Deal. You're telling, you're telling on me. And he's like, I'm not concerned about you. Like, I'm concerned about her. Like, if you want to do this, that's fine. But, like, don't walk across the courtyard because she's looking out the window. Like, it's it's not that he's watching out for Joe, but he's not actively... Like, to me, Max isn't actively antagonizing anything. I don't think the choices he's making... I think he thinks they're for Norma's best good, and they're not. Yeah. But there's nothing malicious to me about Max. There's just something that's, like, kind of sad. Agreed. Um, but I will say... Uh, so there's that saying about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Oh, true. true. So, I mean, ultimately, I don't really see there being a villain in this movie, except for maybe time. Or the, the industry. Well, exactly. Yeah. And how the industry changed over that. But I still I still had problems with <laughs> Max's yeah. no, uh, I mean, he's, decisions. I would say he's the character that out of the entire movie, he's the one I... I probably have, like, the most confused feelings about. Like, I don't... Sometimes I watch it and I'm really frustrated and mad at Max. Other times I'm like, oh, poor Max. Like, it just kind of depends. But, like, Eric um, Stroheim... Stroheim? I can't actually say his name. I'm bad at pronouncing it. Um, (laughs) But uh, he, of course, was a silent film director, directed Gloria Swanson, and then the film that they're watching is a film that of hers that he directed called Queen Kelly that was, like, never released in the U.S. So, like, oh yeah, that uh, dynamic is so, so interesting. Well, and seeing seeing him very briefly in the projector room watching the film as well, and that's, I think, the only time in the entire film that I saw Max in any sort of state Well, at the, of very, the very end, I think, too, when he directs the news cameras for her to come down that stairwell, which... Oh, my goodness, that... When we get it, when we... Oh, when we talk about cinematography and stuff, we will have to talk about that scene because that that whole it's ending, beautiful. I was like almost in tears. <laughs> so like just yes. because of the genius of it. Um, but yeah, his is another performance that I really like. And then Nancy Olsen as Betty Schaefer, I think she's such a nice contrast to kind of the 
dourness oh, of absolutely. the main three characters. Well, and I think the biggest thing about um, the character of Betty that I enjoyed was her not-so-veiled ambition. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, <laughs> and so, especially given that era of Hollywood, uh, I'm thinking that that would have been... Stop me if I'm completely yeah. off base here. Um, but a woman wanting to be in the writer's seat and doing that stuff, I think, is a very... There are actually am- quite a few women writers. Cut this whole part out. You, no, no, no. <laughs> no, but, I mean, you, you wouldn't always see them credited necessarily oh, okay. or like they were part of a writing team um because i mean the studio system would just like they spit out scripts like nobody's business oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah having like a female editor or a female writer it wasn't it wasn't like super rare or unusual but um i do i agree with you like i like her ambition and there's just there's something that's just like so nice about that character. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, like, and, she's funny and she's intelligent and, and it's just... And knowing her history with her parents that were both in the studio system but behind the camera doing, mm-hmm. a, I think it was, what, costuming and... I think she said her grandmother did stunt work. Yeah, like, which yeah. is impressive pedigree right there. But yeah. the fact that she is still level-headed enough to understand, like, okay, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going to be good at. Yeah. And the fact she came back from that horrible experience doing screen tests, where, like, she goes and gets a nose job for it. Exactly. It's such a contrast between her and Norma, because with Norma, you see someone who went through the system, became a big star, and wasn't able to kind of get rid of the baggage that came with that and was sort of just chewed up and spit out by the studio system. And then you see Betty, who kind of was on the path to have similar experiences and like makes, you know, does something, you know, we talked about Norma like that. Yeah. But we talked about Norma, like, you know, going through all those painful beauty procedures for something that's never going to happen. Betty goes, gets a nose job and she's like, then they still didn't want me. And I was like, screw it. Now I'm a writer. And it's exactly. Yeah. So I think you get a nice contrast there between someone who got chewed up by the studio system and then someone else who was able to adapt and kind of find their own way. Yes. Which, Betty's great. Um, but yeah, so do you want to move on to, we kind of talked around it a couple of times, but just like the look of this oh, film. Absolutely. So like sets, so, costumes, cinematography, lighting. Oh, It was fantastic. So I know, especially that very first uh, couple minutes that you were in Norma Desmond's Palazzo, as they call it, is fantastic from that it's interesting seeing how they decided to show the decay yeah from the outside though so with the garage it's like super evident that oh there's like nothing going on here and then you turn to this house and I don't know if this is just my presentist how I would view something as rundown or not it's like it doesn't really look that bad to me <laughs> well I think I just you need to trim the palms the thing a little is, bit and you'll be it's fine it's not like shiny it's not like what you would okay. think a ho- at least this is the impression that I got that it's not like what you would think a Hollywood grand house would look like like it's yes. just it's almost like Norma where at first it's just a little off. Oh, absolutely. And it's like a little dusty. Well, it needs work like it's and not the house is a literal meta well, a literal metaphor that's an oxymoron, but yeah. it is a beautiful metaphor for Norma yeah. herself. I mean, it's it's a museum, and it's when like I think it's interesting too how you kind of see the house change as Norma starts falling for Joe, and you see her kind of you know and thinking that her movie is going to get made, and 
you see her kind of starting to become happy because, like, think about the pool the first time you see it. And he's like, and of course yes. there was a pool. They all had pools in those days. And then they fill the pool and it's clean around there and, like, Norma's happy and they're in the sunshine. And she's mm-hmm. like, this is the first time I've ever been happy. And then William Holden's like, this isn't good. <laughs> yes. Um, but, like, yeah. And so apparently, so I had read that the cinematographer um, at some points would put dust on the lenses of the oh, cameras to add kind of this, like, murky haziness, mm-hmm. which apparently he also did in Double Indemnity, which is another Wilder film. Um, it's a noir, and I think Holden might be in that one, too. Um, but also, I did check on this. They did choose to film in black and white, because this is 1950, so Technicolor is kind of starting I to become more the norm. Touch, well, yeah, and it fits with the genre, because it is exactly. a noir film, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, also because you have, you're dealing kind of with already this transition of a star from silent to sound. I think also having that in Technicolor, I think you'd lose some of it. Absolutely. And well, then, the focus would be, uh, uh, in certain cases, I find color films, unless done in a very specific controlled way, to be potentially more distracting than, I agree. Yeah. than when you have the black and white, because well, you're able to focus on the I don't actors think You themselves. couldn't do the stuff with the lighting that they do. Oh, absolutely not. Which, so, really oh, quickly before lighting. we move on to lighting, talking mm-hmm. about set a little bit more, um, I really do love what they did with the main expansive living area that they had so many different scenes in in her mansion. Mm-hmm. So I know the very first scene that we see him walk in and meet her and you have the organ <laughs> whistling in the yeah. background, um, which... Uh, the fact that Max plays Takata and Fugue <laughs> at some point <laughs> is just too perfect. <laughs> um, but I love how you have all of the headshots of uh, Gloria Swanson. Yes. Yeah, all of the headshots of Gloria Swanson looking in on her, on Norma. Yeah. Um, and so it's like the past is just very much there yeah. in that. And you even, like the history of the people that have come in and how she talks about her house, how it's so grand and how mm-hmm. she's done things like, oh, it was wood, but only the best tangos are done Because Valentino said this. Exactly. And, so yeah. it's, um, it, it's awesome to see how the set is a reflection of her own history and also in some ways... Um, kind of like a burdensome reminder yeah. of what was. Well, it's like, how can she escape the past when she's constantly surrounded by it? Exactly. Um, and then just the, so the guy who did the set design, I wrote it down somewhere in here. Uh, Hans uh, Dreyer, I mm-hmm. think that's how that sounds, but he did set design. So yeah, and our direction did win the Academy Award, which like, uh, uh, like well deserved very well deserved um and then uh so her bedroom really quickly yes so the satin all those ruffles yes and i think it was that how joe put it yeah um in the bed that was like the bow of a ship so <laughs> that like bed so sailing that bed I had read was a set piece from the Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. Oh my goodness, that's too perfect. <laughs> I know, like it's the like the more factoids you know, just the like better it is. Yeah, yeah, so well thought out. Um, but yeah, I just I want to go back to the lighting because they were mm-hmm. absolutely 
basically two points in particular that I was just like that lighting oh my god and the first was you know the one we talked about with the spotlight at the studio yes and then the second is when they're watching that film and she stands up and you've got the projector light behind her and she's like basically like I'm gonna come back like they're not gonna forget me and it's Oh, it gave me chills. She does it in the old silent film style with the exaggerated movement and the very intense facial expression. And the fact that, again, black and white was such a superb choice. The stark contrast in her outline with the the projector flickering there. Yeah. um, It's gorgeous. Just kind of added to this. It's so gorgeous. Well, and the spookiness of it, too. Oh, 100%. Almost a a foreshadowing moment of sorts. I mean, the movie. The movie. It. It feels like a horror movie a lot of the time. And I think there's actually one moment in particular that I wanted to highlight with that. It's that that very end bit when she's coming down that stairwell. And I love how everyone is almost perfectly still. And then they turn as she walks by. And then I love there's a shot of Hedda Hopper, who, of course, was the famous gossip columnist. Mm -hmm. It was... Let's... Can we, like, talk down that whole scene? Yes. Like, from bedroom to end? So just, I was thinking Which another like lighting thing there actually thinking. is they have that light bouncing off the compact mirror she's holding and it's highlighting her eyes. Yes. And you can just, so they're like bugging out. And spotlight. You yeah. No, it's, it's brilliant. But it, yeah, there's that moment kind of as she's going down the stairs when it pans up to Hedda Hopper and Hedda Hopper looks like she's almost in tears. Well, Hedda and Hopper knows exactly what she's witnessing. Exactly. Which is this downfall. Which, this which Hedda Hopper in real life had probably written dozens of articles about old stars falling off the wagon and like had probably, you know, written, I'm sure tons of articles about Gloria Swanson when she was a big star and just kind of the highs and lows of people's careers. So it's like, she's seen it before. And so it's all that more powerful for her. But that, of course, this is like the, the scene that you're ending on. So it's going to be one of the more impactful ones. But for me, the fact you have, Max, who you know was her first director, now being her last director. Yeah. Because you, we don't know what happens to her after this, but it, she's sure not going <laughs> to be in a picture. <laughs> I'm assuming um. like sanatoria. <laughs> um, but seeing the way that Max just deftly directed both her and the cameras, and she yeah. was just like in character from the moment she stepped out of well, her bedroom. It's, it's almost sad too, because so there's that last line. The all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Yes. She doesn't even realize who's directing. Max. She thinks it's DeMille, which is, I think, even so much more tragic for Max's character. Yes. Um, but there's the moment that I want to talk about is when she stops and she starts addressing everyone and being like, I'm so happy you're all here and all these things, and then looks straight at the camera, and I wrote down the line. Oh, where is it? Oh, and those wonderful people out there in the dark, and she's looking straight at the camera, and it's, oh, it's chills, like, it's so creepy, and so good, and I would, I would put it actually up there, as far as just, like, creepiness factor, and making the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, I'd put that up there with the end of Psycho, (laughs) where Norman Bates is, like, in a straight jacket, and you hear the voiceover of, in his head of him thinking his, he's his mom, and he's like, I couldn't have done it. I wouldn't hurt a fly. And is like looking straight at the camera. Like that is the creepiness level I felt when Gloria Swanson looked out at me with her eyes bulging and is like, all you people out there in the dark. Well, and you know that, you know that there is at least enough 
violence behind that del- delusion and insanity. Mm-hmm. It's so creepy. People die. <laughs> it's so creepy. Well, I think I feel like that's a very interesting like breaking of the fourth wall, and I'm not sure how much of that was done before Sunset Boulevard. I'd be curious to know. Yeah, that because this is, is a very impactful. it is a very Hollywood meta film. I think this is kind of a good transition to that. Like, I mean, it is a film about Hollywood and about kind of the brutal side of Hollywood and the studio system. And I mean, you, it's so self-referential. So like you have multiple references to Valentino, Mm -hmm. the quote waxworks that she plays bridge with, um, are all silent film stars whose careers had sort of ended. So it was Buster Keaton, Anna Q. Nielsen, and H.B. Warner. Well, and they're playing bridge. Yeah. Like, it's... <laughs> That's the best part, bridge. Yeah. Apparently, Buster Keaton was, like, one of the best bridge players in Hollywood, and <laughs> Billy Wilder was like, guys, <laughs> okay, watch him, fantastic. see how he handles the cards. Oh, my goodness. But, like, it's... Like, in, like, the boat from the Phantom of the Opera set, and then, um... I feel like there were... Well, they the they reference they reference yes the cameos they had Hopper Cecil B DeMille who both of them like they nice performances yes because I feel like a lot of times oh. when you see someone who isn't an actor mm-hmm. doing a cameo well like you can tell they're not an actor right. but they see both of them are obviously playing themselves mm-hmm. but they did Cecil such B a nice DeMille role. I'm less surprised about because yeah. he should have had a sense of what should go into a role like yeah. this but with with Cecil's uh, cameo there he his compassion in that whole scene i find just again completely it's, heartbreaking because yeah. he knows how much again going back for a third time to that spotlight yeah. scene in the studio he knows how much having this attention means to norma mm-hmm. and he he's part of the system that turns exactly. her into what she and is he feels bad about yeah. it but he knows that she just is not going to go anywhere at this yeah. point. So the the line about I'll buy him what was it, ten cars? Yeah, when he's basically telling him forget about the car. Yeah. Like don't don't bother her about that. Like yep. he's he obviously sees how fragile she is. And actually another mm-hmm. interesting fact that I'd read, so Cecil B. DeMille obviously had directed Gloria Swanson yes. before and so in the film they use their nicknames for each other. I can't remember what it is he calls her, but she always referred to him as Mr. DeMille. She never called him Cecil, never called him CB, like a lot of people did. Like, he's always Mr. DeMille. So, like, they use that, which I think is such a nice touch. Um, But then, also, they reference, they reference, like, Gone with the Wind. There's the joke at the beginning where the guy's like, I thought no one, I was the one who said (laughs) no one would want to see a Civil War picture. And, of course, Gone with the Wind is the highest grossing film ever made. Yes. Um, Oh, that was delightful. (laughs) Yeah, well, and then, I, you know, they're talking about that script, and there's that wonderful part where he's pitching that baseball movie, and the guy's like, what if we turn it into a woman's softball player, and we add a few musical numbers, now it's musical. Because, like, this is 1950, we're in the middle of the heyday of the MGM mm. musical, and actually, at it's the time... It's seven for seven brothers with bats. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, they, you know, at the time, they had, along with Best Score, there was another Oscar that was Best Score of a Musical. Like, mm-hmm. that is how many musicals were being pumped yeah, out so at the time. Timely. Yeah, so, which I think, you know, Sunset Boulevard and its grittiness is kind of a nice contrast to that. Um, yes. You know, the polished, glossy Hollywood musical, everything's good, everything's not good, sunset. Absolutely. Um, Uh, But another thing with the the set that I really enjoyed was how they used mirrors to great effect. So uh, one thing that um, 
Gloria Swanson's performance has is to some extent she's always doing a, a like a meta performance yeah. of um, her silent film star. But every time you see her framed in a mirror, she's doing even more so like she is on camera, on film, ready to be on. So I know the first the first scene where I found it very apparent was when she stormed off um, after Joe basically turns her down at mm-hmm. the New Year's party. Um, and you see this beautifully framed shot in the mirror in the entry hallway of her going up the stairs in this dramatic fashion, which was just delightful. And then the other big one that I really liked was her violently ripping off these facial apparatus things, the yeah. little stickers in this mirror where she's like, oh, look at me. What is what is this? Let me take this off so I can go and make sure that I'm looking good for my... Performance, my right? My special friend. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but that, and I mean, even in the last scene when you see the compact yeah. reflecting on her eyes, it's like, this is her ref- a reflection on herself, a reflection of the bygones of the yeah. silent film era. They, so it's, yeah, they use it, they use the mirrors for like framing shots when actually the pool shot at the beginning of underneath with him floating and the police in the background, they stuck a mirror at the bottom of the pool oh, really? in order fantastic. to film that. <laughs> yeah. So like, I mean, just, yeah, the use of mirrors, it's kind of with that use of lighting and the way that they like mm. use mirrors to frame the shot or frame the character or like Absolutely. bounce the lighting on the character. It's so good. Um, so yeah, moving on to score. So moving on to score. So this did win for best score. There were... I, I'm iffy on that. So there were a couple moments that I wanted to point out where I thought the score did some kind of really genius things. Because I'm a big fan of mm-hmm. not only beautiful score, but score that like... It needs to be effective. Yes, it really bad. enhances what is going on in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of as like kind of my epitome of this is there's that moment in Gone with the Wind at the train station where the camera pulls back and you've got all of the wounded from the siege of Atlanta and they're playing Dixie overlaid with taps. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing all the death and destruction and you realize it's the death of the South that's happening. And they do that with the music. And I think that's in so many different figurative ways. That's (laughs) exactly like to me, that's kind of the enhance, the enhancing bit. Um, And there was one moment in here that reminded me of that. And it's, after the New Year's party, when Norma's yes, tried to commit suicide, Auld Lang Syne playing while she's lying there on the bed crying, and he's like sitting dejectedly there trying to figure out what to do, and like that was that was a moment when I was like, oh, okay, like this because other than that, the score was kind of forgettable to me. Same, and I feel bad for saying that, but it there's that, and then there was a moment at the very end where he's stalking up the stairs and is like dun 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 dun, and like kind of gross, and mm-hmm. like, but other than those two moments, I like, eh. Yeah, it's it was, I felt well composed. And yeah, it wasn't beautiful. It wasn't bad by any means. It just for me didn't really add effect where I think it, it would have been useful. So I know even even at the very, very end, um, in the scene where she finally does shoot him, um, it just it just wasn't there yeah. for me. But that being said, you know, it would probably be something that I would miss if it weren't there. So it's it's all shades of gray for me on, on that sort of thing. So if it's if it's not outstanding it's not something that I may actually actively mm-hmm. notice. Well, and 
there was, like, I looked it up to kind of to see what other scores had been nominated that year. Because I, because my thought was, I was like, you know, it, it was kind of forgettable to me, but like, was there another standout score? And so, um, I don't have it down. I know All About Eve was nominated and then... 1950. Yeah, 1950. Um, I believe Samson and Delilah. I think you're looking it up on your phone. But basically, there was... Of the other films nominated, there was only one other one that I've seen, and that was All About Eve, and I'm honestly having trouble remembering that score as well. So uh, we'll get the list of the others, but I'm, I'm just not sure if it was like a super strong year for score, honestly. But yeah, as far as screenplay, incredibly quotable movie. Some of the most famous quotes probably in movies of all time. Um, so, like, I... Because you hadn't seen this before watching this. Correct. And so I imagine you recognized movie. some of the lines. Oh, or absolutely. variants, at well, least. Well, the, the very first are... So it's, it's actually really interesting that two of the most quotable lines are from both uh, Norma's introduction and her exit. Oh, yeah. So you have the uh, first, it's... it's um, I'm still big. It's the move, pictures that got small. Yeah. And then you have the I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. De- DeMille. Mm-hmm. Um, which I I kind of love that poetic framing on on both sides. So I'm ready for my close-up. Yeah. She is looming large in the frame at this point in her mind, at least. So it's, again, consistent with her, the pictures got small. I'm still, yeah. I'm still who I am which I, I just found incredible. Yeah. Um, and then I also just wanted to kind of, as a wrap-up, hit kind of once again on kind of where it stood with the Academy Awards since the point of this is kind of us watching uh, Best Picture winners. Um, so it was nominated for Best Picture. Didn't win. Um, trying to remember what beat it out. I think it was All About Eve that beat it. Um it is one of few movies that had all four of its leads nominated, or no, it was nominated in all four of the main acting, acting categories. categories. Yeah. Didn't win any. I think it's one of three films that that has happened to. But yeah, so Gloria Swanson for Best Actress, uh, William Holden, Best Actor, Eric von Storham, Best Supporting, and Nancy Olsen, Best Supporting. Um, and oh, with the caveat that I haven't seen the films that won in those categories, I think it is an absolute... What's the word? Travesty. Yes, it is an absolute travesty that not one of them got an Oscar for their performance. So the one that really kind of upsets me is the Glory Swanson one. Oh, absolutely. Um, And then... Yeah. Oh, she played so the crap. I do have written I do have written down who else was nominated for that. So it was Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard, Ann Baxter for All About Eve, Betty Davis for All About Eve, Eleanor Parker for Caged, and Judy Holiday for Born Yesterday. Judy Holiday won. I have never seen Born Yesterday, but I believe it was quite a shock mm-hmm. at the time because I have seen All About Eve, and that is mm-hmm. one we will watch because it I believe it won. Um and Betty Davis and Ann Baxter are both really good in that. Betty Davis is amazing. I'm not a huge Betty Davis fan. Oh my God, she's phenomenal in that film. So her and Gloria Swanson up against each other, like I understand where that could have been a very tough vote for people in the academies <laughs> for those two performances, but yes. I, I think Gloria Swanson should have won. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we were talking about the score being feel, feeling a little lacking. Um, so... 
cinematography, they had at this time had two different cinematography awards, one for black and white and one for color, because this was kind of when Technicolor was just starting to be the mainstream. Um, so Sunset Boulevard was nominated for Best Cinematography, obviously, because it's freaking gorgeous. But the winner was The Third Man, which is an Orson Welles film. And I remember that having a pretty darn good score. So I'm interested... Was The Third Man also nominated? And With that not being... No, it wasn't nominated for Best Score, I don't believe. Well, you know, maybe it's just our current day sensibilities... That's true. Maybe we just have, have different tastes. Yeah, so the other nominees for Best Score are All About Eve, The Flame and the Arrow, which I haven't seen, but was a Max Steiner score who did Gone with the Wind score. Mm-hmm. So, um, and Then No Sad Songs for Me and Samson and Delilah. So, well, yeah, I don't know. I, that, one, that one I'm just not... Granted, I'm not a music authority, but since you agree with me and you are kind of our music authority, <laughs> that makes me feel a little bit better. Oh, no, I, I did consider it rather lackluster yeah um but uh, all in all though overall 10 of 10 would recommend um i yeah i hadn't watched it in a while and i'd forgotten about the whole introduction with the chimp thing (laughs) (laughs) took you by surprise with that weapon not necessarily by surprise like i realized what was happening when it was happening but like i was like kind of giggling a little bit because like it's a little funny in a very macabre. Oh, yeah. Way, yes. I mean, I have, a, I have a very macabre sense of humor, so um, it worked for me. But, yeah, so I think, was there anything else you wanted to touch on? No. I think that's Sunset Boulevard. Cool. Any Boulevard. any particularly Boulevard. interesting notes you had written down? Because I think I had a... No, other than uh, the, the last 40 minutes of this film are, for me, insert character name, no! <laughs> <laughs> so I know it was, first it was Betty... Yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. First it was Max when we have the big reveal of his uh, deceit with Norma. And then it was Betty with her and uh, Joe's... Uh, well, I, no, it was the point where Betty admitted to being in love with Joe. And you're like, no. And it's just like, okay, well, we're going downhill from here. <laughs> yeah, I remember getting that text where you were like, I'm in the last 15 minutes and shit's about to hit the fan. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, it is. But uh, no, it yeah. was... It was I think the only funny notes, so my notes started getting a little funnier at the end there, because I was pretty late watching this film. I think I finished it around 1 a.m., because I hadn't watched it, and then it was kind of late, and I was like, shit, better watch it. But um, I noted that Joe really should hide shit better when he had that screenplay just sticking out of his jacket pocket. I'm like, you know you're with a crazy woman. There are no locks on your doors. Like, hide your shit. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. Hide your screenplay. Like, Um, oh, Joe. Um... The and other then point, Norma is a fantastic shot. Can I just point that out here? <laughs> the fact that she presumably has never held a weapon before and was able to land what three shots quite solidly into Joe. I mean, hey, she's an and actress. It was not short range. I'm like, you know what? You get it, Norma. True. <laughs> um, and then my very last note is what a champ Connie is. So Betty's roommate who drives her over there. <laughs> Presumably the late at night. And I think when she answers the phone, Connie's like in her PJs in bed. Oh, they both were. Yeah. And then they're, she's like, no, 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 I'll drive you over. And then offers to go in the creepy house with her. I was like, unsung hero of this movie, <laughs> Connie. Oh, exactly. It's the, oh, who was um, in Stranger Things? Barb? Yes. So we're, Connie is Barb, the Barb. Barb uh, got on my nerves, but <laughs> Connie, Connie, I was like, what a champ, Connie. Um, 
So, oh, and then I also had uh, Norma's live performance, Major Grey Gardens vibes. Oh, absolutely. And this this came out prior to Grey Gardens. Well, Grey Gardens right? is a documentary. I, I know, but this came oh, out Oh, you're wondering prior... if, like, Little Edie was probably obsessed with Sunset Boulevard? I mean... It... It had to be something like that, but no, I got that exact with the uh, the yeah. Parasol but yeah, no, no, this was oh this goodness. was definitely so. This was fifties. Grey Gardens was, I believe, seventies. So yeah, it's seeing some early Little Edie impressions here. <laughs> it's interesting how how true to life that movie ha- seems to be for yes so many people. Oh yes. So anyway, I think that is Sunset Boulevard for us. So, thank you for listening to Best Picture, and may we all be champs like Connie. See y'all next time. Bye.